most people need like two to four Airbnbs to replace a nine to five. And most people don't have money to go and buy two to four properties right now. But with the same amount of money that you could buy one, you could sublease like four or five properties and replace your nine to five. So again, number one, you know, verify the regulation. Just you don't want to you don't want your property, your business to be short lived. So make sure you can get a permit, run the comps on the rentalizer, pitch it as corporate housing and get permission in writing. And I say that because I've had a lot of people DM me on Instagram and they're like, hey, the, the landlord just found out. I'm getting evicted now. I got to shut down my business. And like, that sucks. It's like, hey, you should have been upfront with the owner and just get permission in writing. So those are the three like most important things when somebody wants to go uh, into arbitrage. Hey, friends, welcome back to the CarrotCast podcast. I'm your host, Brady Winder. This is the podcast where we help investors and agents build businesses of freedom and impact by dialing in your online marketing. And today I have with me Mr. Jorge Contreras. Welcome to the podcast, Jorge. How are you, man? Brady, I'm doing great. Truly an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, everybody, this is going to be a, a, a really fun, uh, good episode. So we're going to be talking about Airbnbs and short-term rentals today and not just Airbnbs, but a lot of, you know, I hear a lot of investors just kind of go into Airbnbs without a lot of, you know, knowledge or insight that just, we're going to do this. We're going to see if it works. And sometimes it doesn't work and it could have been prevented. It could have been done better. So I'm bringing Jorge onto the podcast because he has uh, doing this more efficiently and effectively than anyone I've heard of in our industry, um, as far as arbitraging Airbnbs and automating them, as far as systems and process, how to find your Airbnbs, how to make sure they're profitable, how to find the right ones, and um, how to get into them with no money. So this is going to be a perfect episode if you're just starting out in real estate or if you're just wanting to start out at Airbnbs, how to do it with uh, lower risk than just buying a property and less intrusive than house hacking. So that's kind of cool too. <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be a good conversation. Jorge is the Airbnb expert. And so um, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Um, but first, before we get into it, um, uh, real quick housekeeping, it's SEO month at Carrot. This episode has nothing to do with SEO, but we've put out a lot of great SEO content this month. So go to carrot.com slash SEO to check that out. And then next month, we're going to be doing um, website design and conversion month. So we're all about conversion of your website to make sure that you're making the most of the leads that you're generating and that you're actually turning those leads into deals. Um, but anyways, Jorge, he runs a six-figure Airbnb business focused on arbitrage and automation, like I said. Um, but what I want to talk about first, Jorge, is um, I got an email from you. I got an email from your assistant about coming on the podcast, went over to your website, and I watched a video about your story. And man, it it, it pulled at all of my heartstrings. It was, it was so good. Um, for the people that haven't watched the video or that don't know you, would you mind just giving us a glimpse into the, the upbringing of Jorge and kind of what drives you, like how you got to why you're doing this thing today? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of challenges uh, in my upbringing. And I think it's great to talk about this because often you see people on social media just showing like the result or the success, uh, everything above the surface. And you don't get to hear a lot of the struggles, challenges and obstacles, mm. which is how people can actually actually relate. And I think this will connect for anybody that is going through a, uh, a chapter in their life where they're experiencing challenges and they feel like they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But mm -hmm. definitely experienced a lot of challenges uh, growing up. Um, 
attended my uh, half brother's funeral when I was uh, five years old. Uh, he got he was murdered uh, due to like gang related, you know, stuff. And when I was seven, I was selling drugs with my dad. When I was ten, we were smuggling people into this country. And Jeez. also, when I was seven, uh, my dad was an alcoholic his entire life, and the doctor told him that if he wanted to see his youngest son Jorgito grow up. He needed to stop drinking alcohol and he did, but the damage was too far and too much. So when I was 12, he passed away from alcohol. And then when I was 13, my mother abandoned me and I'm pretty much the youngest one out of all my brothers and sisters, everybody after me, uh, even though they were only like 14 and 16, they were like pregnant, already had kids. I'm the only one who graduated uh, high school. And I graduated with like four F's and one D, dropped out of college. I did seventh grade twice. So, and then a lot of the friends that I grew up with, uh, like in junior high and early high school, they ended up like in debt, like dead in jail or just really messed up from like drugs and alcohol. Sheesh. That is, that is just, a, <laughs> well, one, I commend you on your storytelling ability. Cause that's a lot to back into about 60 seconds. Uh, two, I commend you on like that. You are resilient, man. It's crazy to see where you are now, you, you know, yeah. especially out of all your siblings and your families and friends group. What would you, what would you attribute, you know, to your success? Like what was, what was the one thing that kept you going through that crazy upbringing? Yeah. So I would say um, what kept me going is I didn't have anything to fall back on. So even when I was like, when I was 16, I was completely living on my own. After my mom abandoned me, her friend took me in. She said, hey, as long as you go to school, she said, I'll feed you, clothe you and put a roof over your head. And that was the deal. And then when I was 16, she said, hey, I've helped you enough. Now you got to look after yourself. I got my first job making minimum wage. I was paying $300 a month renting a room. And I just remember if I wanted to take a girl out on a date or just do anything, go out to a restaurant, like there was nobody there that I could go and ask for money. So it just, there was no safety net. There was no plan B. It was like, this is going to work because it's going to work. It, like it just put me in survival. Like I didn't have an option. Uh, so that, that was a blessing in disguise. But what really helped me, Brady, is that I had to change the meaning uh, that I had given to my story. But because up until I was like 16, I always was a victim to my story. I'm like, I'm never going to be successful. I'm never going to amount to anything because that's what all my teachers told me because I always had bad grades. I wasn't, mm. you know, I didn't have great attendance in school. And so I just believed what they, would t what they were telling me. And I just didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I thought that life was just happening uh, to me rather than for me. And so, of course, mm. as I started getting older, I started going through, a, going to a lot of self-development trainings, a lot of, did a lot of mindset work, a lot of therapy. And then I realized that all of these things actually happened for me and not to me. So, you know, as I saw that at a young age, you know, being at my brother's funeral and him being in like gangs, it was like, okay, well, don't, don't draw myself with other gang members. And then growing up, my dad was like in and out of jail for doing illegal businesses. It was like, okay, well, don't do anything illegal. Just do what's right. And then like, he would like cheat on my mom and that was normal. And we saw how much that impacted our life as, as kids, um, just everything that she went through. So that taught me the value in, you know, being loyal and just focusing on. So everything that I experienced, it was like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. So even today, I'm 35. Like I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't cheat on my wife, I don't do anything illegal. <laughs> and so it just yeah. pointed me in the direction of do the opposite of what your dad did, and it became like the biggest blessing to just change the meaning that I that I had previously given to all those stories. So I think if people 
everyone yeah. that's been to like been through challenges, obstacles, tribulations, if we change the meaning of our story and of our past and realize that all of that happened for us and not to us, it's a game changer. It takes you from being a victim to your story to feeling empowered. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, you know, I'm a firm believer in that too. Like the things happen uh, for you instead of to you, because otherwise you wouldn't have the opportunity to share your story with other people and encourage them and help them as well. You wouldn't be here on this podcast talking about that. One more question and we'll dive into the stuff people tuned into the podcast for in the first place. (laughs) But I love talking about this. Um, Did, did some of that change or some of that motivation drive, did that intensify when you had kids? Because you have at least one kid. I have two. I have a three-year-old daughter and a six-month-old daughter. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Did that, um, you know, so growing up, your dad was not the dad that you wanted to be. Did that really light a fire? Oh, yeah, when had kids? totally. Like, and, and that's exactly what I always said is my goal is to be the father that I didn't get to have, you know, so mm-hmm. for sure. Like, and I think about it, you know, when I travel to like conferences or if I'm not here for three days from time to time, I think about that. And it just, it's always a reminder of my dad wasn't present. Like he was present for us partially. But he had kids with two other women and he was never present for them. Like when he died, I think he owed over $200,000 in uh, child support. And this is back in like the 90s. So it's probably like close to a million with inflation adjusted. And they like never got to see my dad. And so I still to this day, right, they're all in their 40s. And I still see to this day how much their lives continue to be impacted by not having a father figure. Um, so it's just crazy how much your life can be impacted, um, by not having a father figure, but even more important, the meaning that you give it. That's awesome. That's really cool, man. Thanks for sharing. I can relate. I got a, you know, my son, he is eight and like that, that drive, that motivation that comes from that. Um, it's a blessing for sure. Um, anyways, we'll get into the Airbnb side. Uh, thanks for, you know, thanks for having that conversation with me. It's really important. Like, uh, carrots mission is to build, is to help our members build businesses of freedom and impact. And so, you know, as we're, I feel like it's 100% applicable to the conversation around Airbnbs is because it's like, this can help you buy back some time freedom, you know, so that you can have a bigger impact and you can spend more time with your family, you know, that freedom and impact. And so, um, you're, you're kind of living, breathing an example of how you've done this and bought more time back in your business. So, Anyways, getting into it. So you run Airbnb, uh, you're the Airbnb guy. Um, I'm curious, what is your, what's your business model look like now versus when you started out getting into Airbnbs? So when I started investing, that was back in uh, 2012. I actually just posted uh, Thursdays. I like to post a throwback Thursday on my stories. And I have a picture with uh, my best friend who today is actually my property manager. His name's Ron and it's his birthday. So I found a picture. Uh, where it's like me and him standing in front of my very first house that I closed on May 23rd of 2012. So it's cool that you uh, asked me that. That was sweet. So when I started back then, I was doing like house hacking and I wanted to just not have to pay the money out of pocket. So I got this house back then, 2012, four bedroom. I lived in the master, rented the other three rooms, uh, which paid not only the principal interest taxes and insurance, but also the utilities. But I always saved those $1,800 a month that I didn't have to pay. And two years later, I had $43,200 from saving those $1,800 a month. And I took that and rather than buying a Mercedes or uh, a nice car or going on vacation, I did my first new construction project in the backyard in 2014. Mm. And then that started to rent to a long-term tenant for $1,000 a month. So here I am, 2014, living mortgage payment free and making $1,000 a month from the back unit. 
And you know, did you build it? Is this an ADU that yeah. you put in the back of the your? Okay, yeah, yeah. So it was actually a recreational room back then. The ADU law in oh. California didn't pass until January of 2017. So in 2014, even though my property was zoned for to have two units to be a duplex, I didn't have the the lot requirements. So they said, "Hey, you cannot have a second unit with the kitchen." And I'm like, "Well, what can I do?" Because I've always been a big, big believer in do what you can with what you have where you are. They said, well, you can do a rec room. I'm like, what's a rec room? They're like, well, it's like a room that you could use as a recreational room. You could use it for an office or an extra room, but you can't have a kitchen or a shower. You could have a toilet. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I talked to my contractor. I said, hey, we're going to turn this into an ADU or just another unit. I don't think I knew what the term was back then. And so he did. we designed it in the way where after all the inspections and everything, uh, final inspection Mm -hmm. passed, we added a shower. We added a kitchen and boom, I started renting it for a thousand a month. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the powerful thing though, the lesson there is that growing up, uh, and I'm sure you heard this growing up, people always told me that money didn't grow on trees. And I had this belief that money was hard to make. It was hard to come by because of that, you know, hearing that growing up. But I realized in that moment, because after I rented that unit for a thousand a month, it was like a 40% ROI. So in two and a half years Later, after building it and renting it out, I got my $30,000 back. And so now Mm. I got my money back. I'm still making a thousand from the back now in net profit, and I'm still living mortgage payment free. And I realized that money does grow on trees if you learn how to plant money seeds. And I learned Mm. at that point that everyone who told me that money didn't grow on trees were simply projecting their limiting beliefs and, you know, lack of results on me. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome, man. So you got that first property, you built the unit in the back. And so now what, so when you got into Airbnbs, what did that look sure. like? Sure. So, um, my first business is I used to be a professional dancer. And at the time I had a choreography company and one of my dancers who was a performer in 2016, she owned two duplexes in Fresno, California. Her name is Nicole. And she mentioned to me that she was making three and a half times on Airbnb compared to what she was making with like fair market rents. And I thought that was crazy. I'm like, I got to look into this. So there was very little information back then online, like in 2016 about Mm short-term rentals. I tried to consume everything I possibly could. I had um, a few leases. In 2017, I at that point, I had had three houses for a total of like six units, right? So like I lived in one, my mom lived in one, I bought her a house, and then I had four units that were all long-term. So I put all four of those units on Airbnb in March of 2017. So it's going to be uh, six years pretty soon. And I went from making 1500 in gross rent per unit to 3500 in gross rent. So from 6K to 14K. And I was like, what is going on here? So, And how how many, I don't want to throw you off. I'm just curious for context. How many days out of the month were they booked? Uh, I would say probably about 22 days, like about six, like okay. just under 70% occupancy. Um, okay. And all of these units at the time were like two bedrooms and one bath. And I was hosting like about six people on average. And I think on one of them, I pushed it up to eight. Mm-hmm. I told them in the description, hey, I know it's a lot of people, but if you want to save some money, it's a great place. And if you guys can shower yeah. in one restroom, <laughs> you guys can make it work. <laughs> It'll be great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. And, you know, these properties were all in Southern California. So, you know, we have, uh, they were in somewhat proximity to like Universal Studios, Disneyland, near downtown yeah. LA for uh, two of the units. So they were in great locations. 
and uh, and they did really well. And then I and then my next goal was I wanted to scale faster because at the time in 2018 I wanted to replace my my wife's nine to five. She was a law enforcement officer. We wanted to you know start building a family, but in her government job say her shift was going to be you know done in 15 minutes they would say hey lucia you have to stay for another eight hours and there was nothing she could do and so we knew that that was not going to work out i would always joke that i would be with our kids at disneyland while she would have to work and i'm like i got to do something about this so my goal (laughs) get more cash flow and replace her nine to five and i didn't have the capital to keep buying more properties like every few months and so i came across this uh, arbitrage strategy and i'm like okay so i can rent properties from owners get permission in writing in the lease agreements. Cause in all lease agreements, it says no subleasing, but I was like, well, what if I talk to them and I actually get their permission? And I, I just let them know, Hey, I got strong financials, strong credits. Uh, you know, I'm going to be responsible. I'll set up the property on auto pay. If there's any repairs or damages, I'll put in the lease that I'm going to be responsible. And so in, in early 2019, um, my business partner, Jaime and I went and we launched like seven subleases. And that was how I was able to like replace her nine to five. And it, it even, it was strictly a cash flow play, right? We didn't have the equity or the appreciation, couldn't do bonus depreciation with cost segregation from owning the real estate. But at the time that was not important to me. I'm like, I need cash flow to replace my wife's nine to five. And that's what mm-hmm. did it. And then what's cool is only having all those subleases actually helped me, um, you know, compound my, compound my savings and grow my savings so I can then go and buy a ton of real estate. And now I have a, you know, a portfolio of like close to $8 million in like single family homes that are all on there. Wow. So that's crazy. So the first objection that pops up in my head is you said, I, f- I heard this arbitrage model. We did seven of them. The first thing that pops up for me is most landlords wouldn't have a reason to say yes. Right. How many out of the ones that you ask are saying yes? And how do you get in this? Yeah, that's a great question. It's going to be a numbers game. So we get about 25 to 30% of landlords that say yes. And I've never done, I've never done flips or wholesale myself, but I have some, you know, some really close friends that do, and they shoot out like a ton of offers. And they're like, yeah, man, we look at a hundred properties. And from there we submit. So from a hundred properties that they look at, they say they close on like one. Right. So it's a numbers game, whether you're flipping, wholesaling, even if you're a loan officer or a real estate agent, like it's it's always going to be a numbers game. Right. And so with our Airbnb arbitrage, about 25 to 30 percent of landlords uh, say yes. And you get everything in between from people that are completely open to it to people that hang up on you and say, don't ever call me. And then everything uh, in between. But one of the things that really helps us, and I think this will help the audience is. We don't say, hey, we want to rent your property and do Airbnb because the landlord <laughs> is going to think that it's going to be a party house, right? We've yeah. all see, heard, heard on the news once or twice about this crazy party that took place. Unfortunately, these landlords probably came across one of those videos and now they think that's what you want to do in their property. So we always pitch it as corporate housing because we want we want them to understand that we truly only work with professionals uh, that are coming to the property. That could be a family. It could be a legitimate company. It could be nurses traveling for work, relocation companies, government bookings, um, or, uh, or yeah, or, 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 or nurses traveling for work. But we don't allow any parties or any events, uh, even if somebody wants to do like, a, you know, just anything. Or, yeah, like just nothing with music. And we don't allow people other than those on the reservation. So, we really only do work with professionals. So when we pitch it as corporate housing, mm. they're a lot more receptive to the idea. 
Interesting. That's, you know, honestly, you know, I'm familiar with the numbers in regards to wholesaling. And so those are much better numbers than I would have thought, like 25%. That's admirable. Um, and I love how you, you know, you pitch it as that, not only pitch it as that, but that's what the business model is. It's, and, you know, I was going to ask about lowering risk and it sounds like that's one of the ways you do lower risk is having those strict standards on your Airbnb. Right. As opposed to, Hey, we got an Airbnb. Come one, come all. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so what are the, you know, what are the splits like um, between you and the landlord? Yeah. So typically what we do is we pay them the fair market rent. So if, if their property is being advertised for say, you know, 3000 a month on Zillow, that's exactly what we pay. Personally, I've never paid more than what they're asking for only because in real estate, we always want to have multiple exit strategies. And so hmm. when I first started, I used to launch Airbnbs in a lot of gray areas where Airbnbs where they weren't they weren't issuing permits, but they also like weren't illegal. And I, I got caught with my pants down one time where I launched an Airbnb, and again it was a gray area. And six months into the lease, they implemented a regulation that no longer allowed me to operate like one day to the next. And so what I did mm -hmm. is I put it as a long term rental on Zillow, and I got a, a tenant for twelve months who was paying $500 more than what I got the lease for. And mainly because I had furnished it, right? So we put like 15 grand in like furniture. And the crazy part, that, that was at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're coming up on almost, almost three years of making $500 a month from a long-term tenant. So that's yeah. so when I got to experience that, it was like, and see, again, that's another example of, hey, things don't happen to me. They happen for me, right? Who wouldn't like to make right. $500 a month in net cash uh -huh. from a property you don't own without doing uh -huh. Airbnb, right? And so for that yeah. reason, I only and ever, I, I always only want to pay fair market rent because I need to have that as like a backup strategy in case anything ever happens. Um, so I always pay for fair market rent. So if I'm paying them 3000 a month and then I'm making say 6,000 a month, of course, after I pay for utilities, cleanings, replenishables, my goal is to make about 2000 a month in net cash flow, uh, per property. Uh, that said, we only go for properties in primary locations that are near theme parks, the beach, downtown, all of my properties have pools, jacuzzis, and the game room. And we host eight to 12 people, which allows us to charge a higher nightly rate and have a higher profit margin. Mm, so you're only going after those larger groups. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you're paying the landlord around 3000 and then you said the 2000, that's your, that's your net, net cash flow. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay. So that makes sense. Um, I'm curious about some of the automation. So how many Airbnbs do you personally have right now? Yeah, we have 18. So we own eight, sublease seven, and manage three. Okay. So what are you doing to streamline the process and kind of buy back some of your time? There? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so it's three, there's three operations in a short-term rental business, right? Two of them, you need somebody in person. And the third one is virtual. So the two in person is, of course, somebody to clean and someone to do maintenance. And I recommend. Um, to build an in-house team, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but as far as the automation, I got the cleaner, the maintenance person, and then I got a virtual, you know, a virtual assistant in Mexico, uh, only because I used to have VAs in the Philippines, but they're 15 hours ahead of Pacific time. And it was it's hard, a yeah. challenge with the time zones. So by having somebody in Mexico, South America, Central America, the time zones are going to be very similar to like Pacific and Eastern and, and whatnot. 
And what I did is I created a, a Slack channel. So you got the workplace, right? Like the company name. And then each channel is a property. So we have 18 mm. channels. And if I go in, you know, channel number one, people know that anything that we talk about pertains to that property. So I have the cleaner, the maintenance, the VA, myself, and the property manager. And we are in all 18 channels. And this way, everybody communicates with each other. So the VA will come in here and be like, uh, hey, Claudia, somebody's asking if they can check in early, if they could check out late, if they could drop off the luggage. And they all just communicate with each other. And then, of course, whenever something more important um, needs to be done, that's when my manager steps in. And my manager is like a really strong operator integrator. I can honestly delete the Airbnb app off of my phone. Like I am not involved. We don't have weekly meetings. Like he just, he's just a doer and he's, he's really good with that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how I've systemized it. And this allows me again to like work on the business and not be so involved in the business. And like right now I'm working on a couple, you know, developments and going into the multifamily value add stuff. And if I was like 18 properties is a lot of freaking work if you're doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. and you know, I want to continue to grow my portfolio and go after bigger deals and not being involved here allows me to go and do other stuff. Absolutely. It's scalable. And I love just, you know, it's funny, I'm in a Slack in and out of it every day. And I wouldn't have thought to, you know, do that with your properties like that, having a one Slack channel per property. And that way you don't have to worry about, oh, which, which email thread was that exactly. in? Was it this for that, that reply? Like, where is that conversation? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause in the beginning, in the beginning, we were using WhatsApp but it was the same team for like three or four properties. And then that it's exactly what you just said. They're like, oh, which property is this for? And then we just switched <laughs> to Slack and now each property has its own channel and it's all under one workplace. So it makes it super easy to, to handle communications there. Absolutely. So just clarify real quick for me, what is the VA doing or what, what's the difference between what your VA is doing and then what your property manager is so doing? So I have my VA focus on like those lower income, lower income activities that are tedious, but necessary. So like, I don't need a manager to answer, hey, can we check in early? Can we check out late? Hey, can we get more tile? So a lot of that tedious stuff, I have the VA do. You know, she mm -hmm. will send in the check-in procedures, check-out procedures. She'll remind them of the checkout time. Um, just anything before, during, and after as far as communications. Now, let's just say there's an issue. Um, actually, just yesterday, my, I was talking to my property manager, and uh, he was telling me that um, he found like a, a mice in one of the, or like a rat in one of the units. So when it's something like that, you know, like, which is super rare, right? But he goes in there, he steps in, and he actually went to the property. Um, Cause and he set up some traps, you know, when the guest checked out before the next guest checked in. Normally, he would have called a professional, but he's like, "Dude, they're checking in like the same day, and I want to catch this thing." So, like, he just went You're like, "Hey, don't mind me. I'm just getting the rats." <laughs> but he went over there and just handled it right. Uh, and yeah, anything that requires someone in person, he's very hands on. Because again, my VA is in Mexico, so that's kind of how we split some of those roles and responsibilities. And together yeah. they work, uh, you know, really well. And this way we also protect his time because if he was doing all the communications, I think he wouldn't be able to handle the whole portfolio. It would just be a lot of work. Oh yeah, absolutely. That it sounds like you've got, you know, those roles and responsibilities dialed in and separated well. Um, what do you, what are you doing? So we talked a little bit about buying criteria. Maybe we could talk about that a little more, but you mentioned, you know, larger parties, um, they have to have a pool or a hot tub. How are you, um, finding these properties? Yeah. So we find the properties on Zillow 
for for everything. Uh, it just makes it uh, easier. Obviously, all the inventory is there. Um, the only thing I don't like about it is that the filters don't work when you're looking for properties with like pools um, or even the description. So that's why a lot of times I'll actually use um, like other platforms like Redfin. Super easy. The filters work. They're 100% accurate. So I'll go in there and I'll, I'll type a city and I'll put, hey, three bedrooms, two bath, minimum 1,100 square feet. It must have like a pool. And then, um, and that's about it. And then I start looking for everything. And I, I focus on the acquisition. So I'll, I'll look for it myself. I'll find the property I like. I'll talk to the landlord myself. Once we sign the lease, everything else is done by my team. So my team will put together a furniture list. They'll order the furniture, coordinate that everything goes in from once Amazon delivers. They'll assemble, they'll do the decor, be there with the photographer. They'll create the listing for me. Uh, so they have you know my login and password. They'll create the welcome books. And they're like, here you go, here's the listing. And then my manager obviously takes over management. So again, I can focus just on those high levers, uh, which for me is uh, acquisitions. And it sounds like, I'm guessing you've got your systems and process, your playbooks dialed in as far as this. You're not, you're not just winging it and hoping that they can figure it out, but you've created systems for this. Yeah, exactly. Like I have the same team that's been launching all the, you know, for the last three years for me. So when we get a new property, uh, it's typically in, in one of like the same areas. So the, it's the same cleaners, the same maintenance people, the same, it just, we just nice. plug and play to the same system. So it works good. That's awesome. That's crazy efficient. Yeah. Um, anything else as far as buying criteria, you, you know, that we didn't mention as far as purchasing criteria, like purchasing the real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess for somebody that's just getting started, like I've done this a couple of times where similar to when I bought my first property five years later, after that one in early January of 2017, me and my wife bought our first property together. And at the time, you know, we weren't married yet, uh, but we were engaged and we didn't have kids. And we also wanted, I wanted us to leverage the mortgage payments so it didn't come out, have to come out of our pocket. So same thing, we got a four bedroom property mm -hmm. with two bathrooms and we did a split home ADU, right? Mm -hmm. So we were able to, um, you know, close the hallway, open a door where there was no door. We converted one of the bedrooms into a, a kitchenette slash living room. And so we kept the main living area, dining, kitchen, the master bedroom, backyard, all that. And now we, we got two rooms and the middle room was the kitchenette slash uh, living room. And then it had the bathroom, but it was completely separated. It was like a duplex. And we started renting that out on Airbnb and we were able to set up two, the bedrooms were fairly big. So we were able to fit in two queen beds in each bedroom and we were hosting up to eight people. I'm like, I know if I can host more people, <laughs> I can make more money. And again, most of the yeah. time it was like four to six people. And sometimes people were like, yeah, we want to save money. And it would be seven or eight people. They would always park uh -huh. in the street. I was like, don't park in a driveway. But for three and a half years of having that Airbnb there, we saved 3000 a month. So we saved over $100,000 in mortgage payments over the course of three years. And, and again, I'm mentioning this because if somebody out there wants to go and, and buy a property with three and a half percent down FHA or 5% conventional, do some house hacking, turn one unit into Airbnb, mm -hmm. live in the rest of the house. I know everyone's largest monthly expense is where they live. So if you can mm -hmm. get rid of a $3,000 mortgage payment, man, that's like a, a huge, huge, huge win, right? And then those 100,000, mm -hmm. we rolled it over and then acquired more properties, right? 
So that that could be mm-hmm. one strategy for anyone that's looking to to buy uh, and to buy with you know less money to have more money to then buy more deals. Oh, heck yeah, man. I'm a big proponent of instead of first looking at it as like, how much more money can I make? It's like, how can I reduce my monthly expenses first? How can I really get efficient every month? Everything from cars to house to, you know, get rid of all the fluff and how can I make more money on the, you know, hundred percent. Um, yeah. Um, let's talk about risk if you don't mind. So I know, you know, People think about doing Airbnb, they're like, oh, well, especially where I'm at in more of a rural market, it's a little different, but they're like, well, what if I can't rent it all the time? How do I keep it full? And would I even make that much money? Um, but there's also risk of uh, like seasonality, you know, depending on what yeah. market you're in. There's also risk of like what laws and regulations are going to come down the pipe- pipeline, like you mentioned, um, you know, in the previous story. So what kind of risks do you face and what are you doing to kind of, you know, be ready to pivot when sure. those regulations or things happen. Yeah. One of the risks is regulation, right? I would stay away. And again, when I first started, I would, again, there wasn't as much regulation as there is today, but I see it as a blessing because today I only launch in areas where I can get a permit because in the past, right. I learned from that experience where uh, six months into the lease, they changed the regulation and then I couldn't operate. And then it was like, okay, I don't want to keep building businesses, investing time, money, and resources to something that is going to be short-lived. So a risk Mm -hmm. is launching in areas where it's it's a great area or launching in areas where you shouldn't be launching in the first place. So really the Mm -hmm. way to avoid that is, again, only launch in cities where you can get a permit. Um, That for sure is like a big risk. And the good thing is once areas have regulation in place and you can get a permit, whenever they do make adjustments, they tend to be very minor. the changes are major when there is no regulation and they implement one and they could likely not be in your favor. The other thing is as far as the actual numbers, uh, just like when you use the, you know, the MLS or different resources to get the comps to figure out the ARV on a wholesale or on a flip, we look at two softwares to get the numbers to extract the data. And that is MashVisor, which works everywhere in the US except Puerto Rico. And then AirDNA works worldwide. And so with AirDNA, they have a, a, an area on the rentalizer and you can plug in an address and it'll tell you what the projected revenue is for the next 12 months based mm-hmm. on similar properties in bedroom count, bathrooms, square footage, uh, location, amenities, and all that stuff. So that's what makes it really cool. So in, if you're going into an area, say like Big Bear, California, or Poconos, like New York, um, mm-hmm. they're going to, um, they're going to be there. Those are, those are going to be like, like seasonal areas where during like in big bear from November to May, you can make a ton of money, but on the other months, yeah. like it's going to be really slow. But if you're looking at mm-hmm. what those properties did over the last 12 months and you just, and it says, Hey, this property is projected to make, you know, $80,000 over the next 12 months. And you're going to have, you know, $40,000 in rents, then, you know, it's, it's a no brainer. Um, mm-hmm. so that's why I like using those softwares because it helps, you know, mitigate, uh, you know, some of the risk and our goal is to be able to generate double whatever we're going to pay in rent. So if I'm going to rent a property for 5,000, I want to see that there's already properties making 10. If I'm rent, if I'm going to rent something for 2000, I want to see other properties are already making 4,000. 
That's awesome. That's a really good tip. Thanks for sharing that. Are you, um, yeah, especially for places like Big Bear. I mean, there's a ton of places like that, you know, where we are in Oregon or down in, you know, uh, Nevada, these little ski resort towns, you know, um, have you found that to be pretty reliable or are you still trying to couple that with like talking to locals? Um, you know, I, I would say it's, yeah. it is, it is very reliable, especially cause these are like paid softwares. I think if they were free, mm -hmm. I would be like, mm, but they're pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah. Like these softwares are pretty yeah. expensive. Like mash fighters, like 800 a year. And with air DNA, mm -hmm. I mean, we have the worldwide subscription, but you could buy just per city and it could be like 20 or a hundred dollars. But with the annual worldwide subscription, it's like 7,000 a year. Um, oh, wow. that said the numbers that you're getting right now, uh, from air DNA based on the last 12 months performance, right? The last 12 months is very different than these next 12 months. So I'm telling my students to, you know, subtract like 30%. So if it says mm -hmm. that property is projected to make a hundred, you should only account for like 70 because people are spending way less money right now. And we're having to bring down our prices, um, right now, um, in order to, in order to be competitive because people are just not spending as mm -hmm. much as they were six or 12 months ago. Yeah. People are tightening their belts, you know, and, you know, postponing vacations that they were going to take because it's, uh, it's getting more expensive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what, one of my questions was how do you, you know, if, I guess it'd be for your students because it sounds like most of your Airbnbs are local to Orange County. How are you forecasting future demand for other markets? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's two things that we do. The very first thing is to look into the regulation and then the numbers. So what we do is we just have them go on Google and look up the building department in that city. So if somebody wants to launch in Dallas, California, they go on Google and type building department in the city of Dallas. And then the phone number will come up. And then that's where you ask, you know, hey, what's the regulation? Can I get a permit? Are you still issuing permits? What's the process? How long does it take? How much does it cost? Uh, and then if you know you can get a permit, then the next thing is you go on the rentalizer on AirDNA, look at the projected revenue, subtract 30% just right now for the recession. And then after that, if the number still makes sense, then you can pretty much replicate that in any market. Mm. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. And asking for a friend, these gray markets you mentioned, um, what's the, is this just counties or cities building departments who haven't decided their stance on Airbnbs? Like if, if you can't pull a permit, but it's not black and white, that it's illegal. Do you get a slap on the hand? Do, do they, are they even looking for those? Like yeah, that's super interesting because it's funny. Cause when you call the building department, they'll say, well, we're not giving <laughs> It, you know, we're not issuing permits, but it's not allowed. And we're like, okay, can you point me in the, the area on your website where it says that short-term rentals are banned? And they're like, well, they're not really banned, <laughs> but they're not allowed. And that's how you know it's like a gray area, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so, again, it, it depends. Like, I, I'll give you an example. Like, if you're living in an area right now and it's a great area and you're going to move out of that property and like you already own it and it's like, dude, it's already furnished. I'm going to buy furniture for the new house that I'm going to move into. My mm. will give it a shot on Airbnb. It's like, cool, just ride the wave, right? Because you have nothing to lose, everything to mm. gain. Um, and in most places, they won't issue you fines unless it's actually banned because then you're like violating a regulation, right? Like, in the city of New York, although it is changing, and in New York, and same thing, it's they're also changing. And right now, they're banned, so they can give you fines. I think five hundred to a thousand dollars per day right now in those areas. Um, 
but they are changing uh, both of those regulations to start allowing short-term rentals, which is good. But if it's in a great area and it's not banned, they can't really fine you for something that they don't have, uh, you know, a ban for. So it's one of those things where depending on the situation, you could just ride the wave for as long as possible. Like I did that, uh, the house that I mentioned earlier that me and my wife bought five years ago or six years ago. Um, it's still on Airbnb and it's still a great area. There's no, per you, you can't get a permit, but it's also not banned. So we're just riding that wave for as long as possible. And honestly, I don't, yeah. I don't think they're going to change. They're, they're going to like do anything. So some cities, uh -huh. they, I think they're just going to stay that way. It's just not really a priority. Um, because uh, it's also not taken up. Like there's not a lot of Airbnbs in some of these cities. I think if it gets to the mm -hmm. point where, hey, 20% of the inventory or 10% of the inventory is taken by short-term rentals and they're taken away from affordable housing and they're creating mm -hmm. a supply and demand issue and it's getting more expensive, then I can see something happening. But until that happens, it'll just be on a city by city basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... I guess my last question would be as far as looking at the future, anything you see coming down the pipeline for Airbnbs or is there going to be more demand for it in the future or less? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the things that I always look at and I like to go into the Airbnb app and kind of look at who is booking our properties. And one of the things mm -hmm. I notice uh, frequently is that a lot of people who are staying at our Airbnbs are staying at an Airbnb for their first time. And I know because it tells you when their account was created. So I'll be like, hey, this person created an account in January of 2023. Like they don't even have a profile picture. There's no reviews. And you're like, oh, it's like it's a new person who maybe just discovered Airbnb. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's a great sign because people are realizing that this is an alternative way to have a, you know, have an experience, have a vacation other than a hotel. And so I think they're like. And of course, even when I just meet people all the time, they're like, oh, I've never stayed at an Airbnb. So I think as long as we have a lot of that demand, which I believe we will, I don't, I don't think there's going to be uh, an issue. Interesting. That's good to hear. That's really insightful. Cause to me, I've stayed in them and I think, ah, Airbnb is like, that's our norm. I like staying in Airbnbs versus a hotel, even if I'm not even saving money. Cause I just like the experience more, but I forget there's still masses of people who just never stayed at one. It's mysterious to them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anything you would want to add and people should know about Airbnbs? Yeah, sure. anything? yeah, I would say like, there's really three main things. Um, if somebody wants to get into Airbnb arbitrage and again, just to kind of preface this, my goal for everybody here listening is to own as much real estate because there's no doubt that's where you want to be. That's where you're going to create long-term wealth, have that equity, that depreciation. And, you know, that's how you create long-term wealth. That said, most people I know are not in the position to go and buy like most people need like two to four Airbnbs to replace a nine to five. And most people don't have money to go and buy two to three, two to four properties right now. But with the same amount of money that you could buy one, you could sublease like four or five properties and replace your nine to five. So again, number one, you know, verify the regulation. Just, you don't want to, you don't want your property, your business to be short lived. So make sure you can get a permit, run the comps on the rentalizer, pitch it as corporate housing and get permission in writing. And I say that because I've had a lot of people DM me on Instagram and they're like, hey, the, the landlord just found out I'm getting evicted now. I got to shut down my oh. business. And like, that sucks. It's like, hey, you should have been upfront with the owner and just get permission in writing. So those yeah. are the three like most important things when somebody wants to go uh, into arbitrage. Mm. 
I appreciate you sharing that. I think that that demystifies a lot of what could be a very mysterious and, you know, a lot of unknown. Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. So you teach this, you coach students through this. You're the guy to learn from. Where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is the like T H E and then Jorge Contreras. So the Jorge Contreras and uh, make sure there's no underscores or any of that stuff. It's just my name. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you sharing that. Everybody listening, hope you got value out of this. I enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Jorge, thank you for sharing your story. I appreciate that. I know that was impactful for our audience. So um, anyways, everybody listening, if this was valuable, share with a friend and uh, we will see you next week. Thank you guys. Have a good one.